Good morning, family. How you doing? It's great to have you and all those who participated in our service this morning. They say that at uh, 14 weeks old, the average baby is 20. No, is what? Did, what was our what was our sums last night, Danielle? It was 14 pounds. And uh, this is Raphael. He's almost double that. <laughs> he is 10 kilogram little man who's four months old. Is that right? Where's mum? Where's mum? This is uh, the newest preacher in the church. His name in uh, Spanish is Rafael Zigüenza. <laughs> and he is a handsome fellow. I'll see if he can look this way. Look at these guys. They want to see your face, mate. They don't want to see my face. You'll see some Christmas decorations on the stage and uh, we'll be celebrating our Christmas carols uh, community event this evening with all of the rest of Alice Springs and the other churches in Alice Springs. And I want you to have a look at little Raphael for a second because this is the strange and crazy thing that Christmas tells us, that there's all sorts of ways we would answer the question, how do things change? How do things change? I wonder if I ask you that, how do things change? How would you answer that question? How does the world change? How do you change? You know, I've been a pastor for a little while now and it seems apparent to me that almost every person I talk to, whether they believe our particular brand of worldview or not, that uh, people seem to carry an ache with them, an ache that is a deep knowing, an ache that is a knowledge that things need to change, things need to change in this world. And most of the time, things need to change in them. Things need to change in their families, things need to change in their workplaces, Many people choose types of work so they can be part of the change that they wish to see in the world, don't they? And I know looking around this room, so many of you have chosen fields of profession or family or hobby or social expression that indeed make some type of positive impact in the world because deep in our hearts, we're confronted with various things and we say to ourselves, things need to change. Look this way, handsome, look out there, there's lots of people there. That's right, yeah, what do you see? Now, I don't know about you, but there's been all sorts of formulations throughout history. You want to say something? I've got to just change my grip. Bear with me one second. How you going, buddy? You look almost as bored as everyone else in the church with... Pastor Ben's preaching. Let's see if you can stay awake when no one else can. (laughs) There's all sorts of answers to the question how things change. But in Christmas, what we celebrate is a wonderful picture. And the picture is much like this little man, although I don't know how much we'd be free with the adjective little. Um, This little man who is laden with potential, isn't he? You think about it. One day Raphael will have a neck. One day he'll walk and talk and his parents will have to find other ways to work out their biceps. He's laden with potential, isn't he, Dan? I'm just going to get you to take him because my CrossFit don't extend that far. Little man, thank you. But I want you to think about Raphael because Raphael comes to us. Yes, give him a hand. Little fella, he's my little buddy. Now he's sitting next to my mum who's here who finally got to come to... uh, Alice Springs, welcome Lynn Teefee. You know, there's all sorts of explanations we'd have for how the world changes, what changes things, and uh, it's not new, it's not just something you and I would think about, but it's something that is old, it's something that is historical, it's something that comes to us not only from modern philosophers or postmodern philosophers or post-postmodern philosophers, but actually from antiquity. Uh, humanity has always wrestled with something that's been described differently, but almost universally fits under the guise of this blanket term, the human condition. How would you imagine that we could deal with the human condition? And when we look at the problems, particularly in our world, how many of them are linked to the condition of the human condition? And maybe you would, um, you know, have a nuclear war. Maybe you would have a marketing campaign. Maybe you would just make some universal rules and enforce them. Maybe you just encourage people to put in more effort. Maybe you would offer people more comforts and in the hope that as they climbed the hierarchy of their needs, that they would then transcend their baser nature and uh, reach this place of self-actualization. Maybe you'd offer people more advantages by way of encouraging them to do good. Maybe you would offer people, you would encourage people to pull together. 
and do better. Maybe you'd send in an army and solve all the problem by slaying the evildoers. Maybe you'd take God's position and just, uh, in one thunderous lightning bolt, miraculously change everything in an instant. I wonder how you would change the world. Well, God's idea about how the world changes is counterintuitive to us as humans. We know that because it takes us our whole lives to get our head around this thing called the gospel message. I've been following Jesus for 20 years. Before that, I was definitely not following Jesus, quite addicted, quite depressed, quite traumatised, drinking myself to sleep most nights. And after 20 years, I'm still walking with Jesus and I'm still getting my head around the way God does things because His ways are so much higher than my ways. How about you? And Christmas is when God presents us with His plan and we celebrate it every year, not just in our culture, but across many cultures of the face of the earth. In fact, overnight I got a text from some of my friends who live in the Himalayas showing me their village, which is literally parked on the side of a mountain with Christmas decorations. And even up high in the Himalayas, somebody knows about the coming of this person called Jesus that has had major historical impact. And of course, the earliest followers of Jesus, they couldn't understand what at all was going on with him, not just in his teachings, but in the way he embodied those teachings, in the things he said and the things he did and the things he stood for. They were deeply counterintuitive to the people at the time because, well, first of all, Jesus comes a little like wrath. Although I'd say that being born in a manger to a mother that's just done the um, refugee trail a little bit, that he might not have been quite so plump as little Raph. Jesus comes to us and when Jesus could speak for himself, he announced that in his advent to planet earth, in his coming to planet earth, something happened and that was the unveiling of history, that was the unveiling of God's plan, that was the answer to the question, how do things change, how does the world change, how do our families change, how do our societies change, how do we change? And the answer comes to us At Christmas, introduced in the form of a baby, think about that, it's vulnerable. Think about that, it's easy to overlook. Think about that, it's something that might captivate our attention for a little while, like beautiful babies do. But there's more power in the Christmas story when we understand that this vulnerable baby grows. That vulnerable baby really grows. He's getting fed the right stuff. He's having his acai bowls and doing his bicep curls. The baby grows and the baby grows and the baby grows and the baby thrives and the baby thrives. And in Jesus, what we see is we see the coming of God's kingdom to planet Earth in a way that grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. Jesus' answer for how things change, how I change, how the world's changed is different to ours. I referred earlier to Abraham Mazaru, who told us that if we just attend to the hierarchy of all of our human needs, that eventually if we one by one attend to all of the things we need, that we'll reach this thing called self-actualization and if we're very lucky, we'll reach this other place where we transcend everything about ourselves and give our lives away to others. The very insightful Sigmund Freud, I know pastors aren't allowed to be fans of Freud, but I do find him an incredibly astute uh, student of human nature with some incredible observations. Some of them hair-raising and no less because when we look inside ourselves, what we find can be pretty hair-raising, isn't that true? And if you don't want to admit it in church, that's okay, your wife knows about it. Freud said that we could change ourselves and change the world if we would recognise the ambiguity and the anxiety caused by the disparity between the realities that we find ourselves in and our conscious and unconscious minds. And if we could deal with this id, this well of untamed hedonism and selfishness inside of us, which fluctuates between our libido and our sexual power and our sense of mortality. It's pretty much like the person you live with, isn't it? Well, Jung said, he was one of Freud's students, he said, no, 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 the way we change and the way everything would change is if we pursue individuation and the process of coming to know and giving expression to and harmonizing all the components of our psyche. And if we only realized our uniqueness, then we could undertake the process of individuation and we would tap into our true selves and then we could be truly ourselves and truly alive and then everything would change. It's a compelling idea, isn't it? 
Well, Thomas Hobbes told me that all of my desires and thoughts and actions are all grounded in my biomechanical realities and that's why I'm selfish and that's why I've got all sorts of other issues going on. And really, only a steadfast social contract with my fellows around me can possibly raise my untamed animalistic self to a civilised level. Nietzsche told me that life is a will to power and that's what drives me really is my own power, my own success, my own expression, my own domination. And then his student Alfred Adler said that that's really what drives my psyche anyway, the desire to rule and dominate others. And Dawkins told me there's no real human condition to deal with, actually there's just pure, cold existence. That's forward in time. We can go backwards in time and we can listen to Gautama Buddha, who told us that, well, actually, there is a human condition and here's what it is. Life is illusory. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. But there is a reality and we are that reality. And when you understand that you are the reality and see that you are nothing and that you are being nothing, then you are everything. In modern times, our consumer society has told us that if we find our identity in the things that it promises, that'll help us deal with the human condition and that'll change us and that'll change the world. And we can define ourselves through possessions, which simply is, I am what I have. We can define ourselves by a performance, which says, I am what I do. We can define ourselves by approval, which means, I am what others think of me. And that plays out on the macro scale where now you can be famous for doing nothing or on the micro scale, like the wave of mental illness that has swept adolescents in our society who now the vast majority of respond to surveys by saying they hate themselves and they hate their bodies. And one of, not the only, but one of the core correlatives of that is this thing called social media where people will tie themselves in knots just to get some likes. And how many people know it's tragic because as a human made in God's image, you're not made to be liked, you are made to be loved. Our consumer society offers us experiences and says, I am what I feel, I am what I acquire. And it can be frustrating for us, can't it? We weigh up all of the competing worldviews and all of the competing options and all the competing advice. Have you ever been to a self-help conference? And 10 different speakers will offer you 10 different pathways which will solve your 100 different problems and then you get home on Wednesday and things are pretty much the same, aren't they? Start the new year with a new gym membership and by March things are pretty much the same, aren't they? People say no one can tell me and Raph apart, that's why I had to grow my beard. Isaiah of Jerusalem lived in the 8th century BC and he was part of the royal family. He was a scholar, very literate for especially that culture. And his heart and his mind and his soul were gripped by the need for change, by the need for transformation, not just of the city and the culture that he lived in, although he was a scathing critic of the rich elites that watched the orphans unfed and the widows uncared for. He was a scathing critic of unjust bloodshed. He was a scathing critic of tribalism and war. And he wrote extensively, giving vent to his prayer and meditation-soaked desires, giving voice to his intuition that things don't have to be this way and, in fact, they should be different. He watched his nation soaked in blood. He watched the world soaked in blood as he watched the rise and fall of two empires and then a, a wave of sea people who you might recognise called the Philistines that invaded the Holy Land during his lifespan. He watched all of these changes and he was frustrated enough that he almost lived in the temple of Jerusalem day and night in prayer. And he was so frustrated that as he cried out to God, his crying out to God turned into visions of God. And if you've ever sort of been super curious, what you should do is read the writings of Isaiah of Jerusalem. It's called the book of Isaiah and you'll find it in the Old Testament of the Christian scriptures. And Isaiah is seeking led him to see into the future in really quite profound ways. And if you've got any taste for ancient history, it is fascinating to read through the oracles of Isaiah and see how he predicted the turn of events for things both immediate and things a little further away than his lifetime. 
some examples are the rise and fall of two empires and pre-naming a king hundreds of years before that king was born. Detailed historical insights about things that would happen in the ancient Near East that are actually astounding when you read them and you think, short of revelation, how else would one conclude these ideas? And of course, the coming of a Messiah who would be born to a virgin, which is one of the profound things about the Christmas message, one of the reasons that the earliest followers of Jesus knew there was something special about him was because Isaiah and his peers had lobbed up so many predictions that one day God would change everything by sending a saviour, sending a ruler, sending a suffering servant king who would inaugurate God's kingdom that would grow and grow and grow, much like the baby that was born would. Now, in case you think it's all happy, Isaiah's writing is not all happy. And you can hear a lot of emotion, a lot of pathos, you hear a lot of heart cry in his writings. We're going to put it up on the screen, I hope, and uh, it says in Isaiah 64 verse 1 to 2, Isaiah gives full flight to his sense that something needs to change. Have you ever felt yourself just so frustrated and said, God, why don't you do something about this? In the face of suffering, in the face of injustice, in the face of starvation or abuse or trauma, in the face of your own conflict, even your own inner conflict. And Isaiah said, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you as when a fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. I want you to think about the passion in that. Isaiah's heart overflows with his solution to how things would change. If only God would rip open the heavens and come and do a full disclosure to planet Earth. I mean, wouldn't that be cool, hey? Wouldn't it be cool to see it on CNN? Isaiah says, oh, if only you would rip open heaven and come down. But then Isaiah betrays a little bit of his idea, doesn't he? He betrays a little bit of idea. Well, what would it look like if God did that? I'll tell you what would happen. A big firestorm would come. A firestorm would come. God would rip open the heavens and then, man, like a fire setting twigs on, on a flame, like, like, like a pot on the boil, God would come. The mountains would quake in his presence and even God's enemies would tremble before him. It's a profound passage because if you read Isaiah's book, what he classifies as God's enemies are not limited to people outside the temple. Actually, it's it's even what's been going on inside the temple that Isaiah has chronicled, that religion has become so dead and so lifeless, it's become law, it's become politics, it's become ideology, and now rather than give life, it brings death. What a mandate to his peers and even to us as followers of Jesus who meet in a church to be careful of that we embrace Jesus and not religion, who could say amen? Isaiah's vision of the future Oh, if God would only rip open heaven and come and sort it all out. And we can understand it, can't we? I think even people who don't know God, don't believe in God. I think many times when I've had conversations with people, I love having a cuppa to have thoughtful chats with people about God. And how many times people say, well, if God's there, why doesn't he just like, just, you know, come and do it or fix it all. It's a very understandable human cognition. He wanted God to come and he wanted God to open up a can of whoop glory. In his musing, his passion, his invective, his critique of the world of his day and all the empires around about, even his own royal family that he was part of, Isaiah's musing gives way to a vision of the future. And that's what's so important about grieving what's wrong with the world, isn't it? That we're not just shiny, happy Christians that come and pretend everything's okay and faith is like some form of denial and some form of escapism. Actually, grief is a part of faith. Grieving the way that things are, because deep in our hearts there's a blueprint, even if we're not schooled in theology, there's a blueprint about how things ought to be. Isn't that true? Isn't it true that there's just some things no one ever had to tell you it shouldn't be like that? And grieving, if we do it in a Godward direction, often gives way to a vision of the future. And that's what happened with Isaiah. If you turn the page of the Bible, a couple of chapters, you get to chapter 65 and you can start in verse 17 where Isaiah articulates a vision for the future, a God birth vision for the future. What would it look like if God ripped the heavens and came down? And he puts, he receives this vision, this revelation and in the words of God himself, he writes, listen to what it says from verse 17 of Isaiah 65, see, 
I will create, everybody say, create. Create is a powerful Bible word only ever used of God. It is the work of God. Humans make things. God creates something. So see, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Hear the wonder of this new thing. Isaiah's vision of the future is that God will make a new world, that he will recreate a world and something new will emerge in our reality. And listen to how it's described from verse 20. Never again will there be in it an infant who only lives but a few days or an old man who doesn't live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. How many people on their way to 100 like that idea? Sticking around a bit longer. Verse 21, they will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. It's hard for us to understand why this would be such good news. Unless you understand the terror of indentured labor and impoverishment and indebtedness, even that's present in our world today where people do build, but they'll never sit under the shelter of what they build. And they do plant and they do labor, but they'll never enjoy the fruit of the areas they labor in because it is displaced. It goes to the rich, to the elite, to the powerful and not to them. And Isaiah, is saying God would create a new world. Here's the new future. Here's a vision for a new way of life that you'd, 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 you'd benefit from what you labor for. You'd enjoy the fruit of what you've planted. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat for as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. I mean, what a prayer, hey? What a prayer. They will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they were speaking, I will hear. And listen to this wonderful poem. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. The poor old serpent, he doesn't get a change of diet. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Listen to Isaiah's revelation about how the world would change. The world would change if God would birth something new in this broken cosmos. The world would change if God would create something new. If a new creation, that's why Isaiah says it's a new heavens and a new earth, that is ancient language from the ancient Near East saying the totality of reality as we know it, everything we could conceive of, if God could make it new. And in the words of God, God says, behold, I make a promise. I want to come into this world and birth something new right even in the midst of what is old. And it'll be a removal of the pain and the suffering and the injustice and the evil that disturbs our hearts. And it will be an answer to the human condition and it'll be an answer to what is around us, but also what is inside us. And this wonderful picture, the the wolf and the lamb will feed together. Well, you know, in our world, the wolf feeds on the lamb, doesn't he? And Isaiah's picture is that the rule of God, when God's rule comes takes away enmity, takes away hostility and replaces it with something else. In the words of the sages from Antioch, they talked about these two things that characterize the world. The first one is hostis, where we get our world word hostility from. War, enmity, hostis. It's a world of hostis, isn't it? And hostis is all around us. That's what Isaiah was raging against. How would we deal with the hostis of the cosmos? God would have to rip open heaven and come down and burn it up. That's what Isaiah thought. But his grief gives way to a vision where the hostess is not burned up, but instead the hostess is replaced by something new that God would create. And in Antioch, they use the opposite word of hostess, this word hospice. Hospice is where we get our word hospitality from. Who loves showing hospitality to people? Who get a clipboard and uh, sign up for the coffee team, Danielle? He loves having people over and caring for them, cooking for them, sharing food or ordering pizza for them, topping up their drinks and fluffing up the pillows to make them more comfortable. It's very caring, isn't it? Showing someone hospitality, it's an act of intimacy when you do it right. 
Who loves receiving hospitality? That's good, that's good. Don't, just only a couple, Andrew and Mary, all right. Um, think about those two words, hostess, hostility, hospice, hospitality, where we get the word hospital from, healing, caring, sharing. And Isaiah's grief about the way things are gives way to a vision, and the vision is when the way things are gives way to the way things ought to be, and he sees a world where hostess is abolished and it is swallowed up by God's hospice. It's a compelling one. A new world without all these horrible things. Well, we celebrate Christmas in our culture not just because of the great tradition of Christmas present giving and a jolly fat man visiting and in my house, I am the jolly fat man that visits, according to my kids. But we celebrate because the believers in Jesus that knew Him, that walked with Him, that followed Him, they saw in Him the coming of a new reality. They saw it demonstrated, they saw it lived out, they saw it spoken of in His preaching, and they saw it exercised in His action. Jesus, who when no one else would touch a leper, Jesus would touch them and embrace them. Jesus, who when other people would be told, you're not allowed into the temple, you're a sinner, you're not allowed near God, and Jesus would embrace them and hug them. They saw all these things in Jesus A Roman official comes and says, Jesus, will you heal my servant? And everyone rubs their hands together and thinks, oh, Jesus is going to give it to the Romans now. And what does Jesus do? He goes and heals his servant. See, Jesus lived and taught and walked and breathed and demonstrated in a world of hostess what the hospice of God looks like. And he came to represent the hospice of God to the human race. And the gospel message is the great announcement that God is acting in history in a person called Jesus to return his kingdom to earth, to bring the hospice of God, which thus displaces the hostess of this cosmos. And so Paul would celebrate the work of Jesus. Peter would celebrate the work of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John would celebrate the work of Jesus. And in Mark, it's not lost on us the way Mark introduces us to Jesus. Listen to this. In Mark chapter 1, verse 9 to 11, we may have it to put it on the screen. It says, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and he was baptised by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And from that day on, Jesus began teaching and preaching and healing and prophesying and announcing this thing called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is here. The kingship of God is here. The rule and reign of God is here. And everyone who lived with Jesus for the first couple of years, the three years that he taught this stuff, they were greatly confused. The Jews were confused because they thought the rule of God would be best um, exercised as a lightning bolt of judgment and, and, and on evil. And, and, and let the unrighteous be smote or smitten. What's the past tense verb. We should ask our brethren from CMS if they can help us with the uh, correct verbiage. For everyone else in the room knows, I just invent words as we go, guys, but, uh, you know, now that we've got some educators in our midst, I've got to be far more cautious, don't I, church? That the unrighteous could be smote, smitten, smut. And uh, that was the solution of the people who were supposedly the followers of God in the era of Jesus. And of course, Jesus is going around embracing the sinners and hanging out with them and healing them and touching the untouchable and loving the unlovable and and reaching out to Romans and Jews and Gentiles and men and women and sort of uh, establishing the end of this hostess and bringing the hospice of God. And those who were supposed to represent God, the religious establishment, the temple, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, well, they were really upset because for them, their mode was an old world mode of hostess and they understood what we want is judgment, what we want is, you know, let's kill all the unrighteous and only let the righteous live and how many of us know if that's our approach, then not many of us are surviving that, are there, are we? And even if you think you are, your husband knows 
and so they killed him. Religious leaders, the major power of the day, they conspired to murder Jesus. They teamed up with the Romans, the other major power of the day, who again lived out of an old world modality, a hostess modality. The Romans were not big on hospitality, but boy, they were big on hostess. When Jesus would have been about five or six years old, a rebellion rose up and the Romans took every male from that generation of adults and crucified them all the way on the roadway from Jerusalem to Nazareth where Jesus grew up. Imagine that. Each side of the road filled with suffering, dying men. As an advertisement, don't mess with Rome. Don't mess with the kingdom of Rome. Don't mess with the Caesar of Rome. Don't mess with the message of Rome. And of course, Jesus, his, his days were numbered from the moment he uttered these words, the kingdom of God is here. Because of course, in 6 BC, the Roman emperor banned the advertisement of any other king or any other kingdom throughout the realms of the Roman empire. Because for the Romans, only one kingdom, Rome, only one king, Caesar is Lord. So from the very first moment that Jesus uttered the words, there is a new kingdom coming into this world, he put himself on a predictable collision course with the powers of the day who operating out of their hostess, the temple, the empire, conspired together to kill him. And this is what's amazing. From that point should have been the death of the Christian movement. From that point should have been the abortion of hope. From that point should have been the understanding. This is, this is all crazy. It's all finished. And in fact, we see that in Jesus' first followers, the 12 that he surrounded himself with when he first was arrested and crucified, they abandoned the cause. Peter, that's it, I'm going back fishing, I'm going back to my old way of life. Judas, I'd rather have some money and and benefit financially from it. Caused Isaiah to look forward in time and say, if you strike the shepherd, then the sheep will scatter. And that's what happened. It's not hard to understand why they killed Jesus It's harder to understand how Isaiah saw it 700 years before it occurred. In detail, like where he would be born, when he would be born, the time in history, other major political things around that time. The very area he would grow up in geographically, Nazareth, Galilee. The method of his death as a painful crucifixion. It's the world's largest historical coincidence if you can't embrace a worldview where God might be at play in Revelation. It's not hard to understand why the Romans and the temple killed Jesus. It's harder to understand why his early followers didn't remain abandoned. Think about that, why they didn't remain abandoned. Why they didn't go back to how things had always been before Jesus did these amazing things. And of course, we'll look forward next year to celebrating the Easter weekend where we celebrate, first of all, the horrible death of Jesus, but according to Isaiah's vision, something that was so much more than a terrible martyrdom, but was a sacrifice was the inbreaking of history, was God ripping over the heavens like Mark saw in his vision when Jesus came up out of the water. God in Jesus is rending the heavens, is ripping heaven open and coming to sort stuff out in planet earth. And the earliest followers of Jesus that abandoned him, three days later they, they unabandoned him. And they unabandoned him because when they'd walked with him for three years, they didn't understand his mysterious predictions, I will be arrested, I will fall into the hands of the chief priests and the Gentiles and I'll be crucified, but on the third day I will be raised up. I was talking to someone recently and they said, of course they believed he raised up, you know, they were primitive people. But you've got to understand that in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire are professional at death, so they don't just sort of like, you know, um, imagine that people raise up from death all the time. There are very few stories of it from the ancient world of people believing that. And what, equate, what equates to a weird scandal of historical significance is that the people who abandoned Jesus at his death three days later became those who would throw their lives away in literal martyrdom because they encountered a living Christ, a Jesus who rose up out of the tomb in resurrection life and said, now there's an answer to the human condition and now there's a fulfilment to Isaiah's vision and it's articulated by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, he says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who, here's the word, reconciled us to himself 
through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That was God reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Reconciliation. How many accountants in the room? (laughs) And they're not even proud of it. (laughs) Oh, Gwen loves her spreadsheets and her my books and her my ob and her my headaches and all that stuff. You know, if you're an accountant and you work out, you're trying to reconcile the books. And when the books don't reconcile, how annoying is it? Never happens. Not, this is a good advertisement. She can hand out some business cards after the service. It never happens when Gwen is at the helm. But the type of reconciliation the Bible talks about when it says that is an ancient Greek word. And the Greek word is katalasso, katalasso. And this word means when I take a coin to a money exchange outlet and I want to exchange currency. So I want to, um, you know, if I want to get some US dollars, I bring 5,000 Australian dollars to get one US dollar. Oh no, maybe I should, I, I, I bring a million Australian dollars and I'll get one British pound, something like that. Um, I come and I exchange and when I give them something, I am given something in return. And this is the thing about the way the currency exchange business works. Um, other than their commission or the profit that they make, roughly what I give, I should get back in equal measure. Are you with me? If I travel, I don't want to get ripped off when I find my exchange rate. I don't want to, you know, be, give, them, uh, give them one amount and then what I receive in return is less than what I'm owed. How about you? Yes or no? If you don't mind, we do have some things we'd like to sell you afterwards. We've got some wonderful timeshare in Antarctica going cheap this time of year. How many people want a white Christmas? And when the Bible uses the word reconciliation, we're going to finish in a minute with communion, by the way. So, uh, when the Bible uses the word reconciliation, it's this word katalasso, which means to exchange currency. And this is the crazy thing that you see, not just in the Christmas story, but you see it all the way through the Bible for God's vision of the future. That the way to deal with the human condition, the way to deal with our world, the way to deal with our cosmos, is that God would start something new. And Jesus came to embody and articulate what that new thing is and invite us into it as followers, to reconcile us, to help us go through an exchange where something happens. And here's the curious thing that no one could have predicted about the gospel message, that in exchange, what we bring is we bring what we have to God and God gives us back what we're owed. Now, if you've lived a perfect life, that's kind of cool. Has anyone here lived a perfect life? Other than my mum, I mean. And when she's gone, I'll tell you about her. None of us have, and the debt falls on our side of the ledger, doesn't it? We haven't lived a perfect life, so if I was to take my imperfect life and give it to God, and he was to return to me what I'm due, then I might find out it's not as much as I'm hoping for. And if I've done evil like our world is greatly capable of, then if God comes, like in Isaiah's vision, rips open the heavens and comes to give us what we're due, then, then, then that might not be good news for everyone, huh? And what Paul celebrates in God's new creation visitation in the Christian gospel is that God takes a financial loss, if you like, the metaphor is financial, God takes the loss. In Jesus, God is reconciling the world to himself. We're not fixing up the deficit in our own books. God comes along and says, let me fix up the deficit in my books. Let me invite you into a great exchange. You give me your world. You give me your soul. You give me your heart. You give me your mind. And I will create something new out of it. I will bring a new creation world into bear. Isaiah's great vision that people could live longer, that there would be no injustice. The exchange of all of our hostess for all of God's hospice. That is the essence of the gospel message. And how does one enter it? Paul says there's only one way, and that is if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Because it's only in Jesus that God reconciles the cosmos to himself, and that is you, me, and everything around us. But then Paul gives us a crucial insight. And he has made us ambassadors 
of this reconciliation, ministers of reconciliation. So we are called to come and be reconciled to God, but then we are called to go as ambassadors of reconciliation, and we are now given a sacred trust and a holy commission, and here's what it is. Could you take God's vision of what is giving way into the world that ought to be, and could you live it out like Jesus did? Could you be the one that loves the unlovable? Could you be the one that touches the untouchable? Could you be the one that says, hey, let's, let's, let's have people live in their vineyards, let's end injustice, let's end poverty, let's, let, let's end unrighteousness, let's bring a wave of God's transforming love and healing and joy, let's get rid of the hostess from our families, from ourselves, from our world, from our workplaces, and let's be channels and vehicles for the hospice of God. Isn't that a compelling vision, friends? And so Jesus' vision of how things change is that we would embrace the hospice of God and trade in our hostess, that inside us and that around us. And then we would go as carriers and as messengers and as ministers of the hospice of God. See, it's so important. I'm spitting a lot extra today for your benefit alone. I find it very difficult looking around our world, seeing that the followers of Jesus has somehow lost sight of the vision of hospice. And living out of a hostess mentality, it's possible that we're just the new Pharisees and we're the new Roman Empire and we're the new temple. And we're the new people who are the agents of hostess. And even today, Christians are known more for what they stand against than what they stand for. And I think that's a travesty of Isaiah's vision and a travesty to Jesus' vision. Even in this room, I wonder if some of us just need to listen afresh to the gospel message today and say, hey, ultimately I'm called in the biggest picture of things to the great exchange to trade in the hostess of my flesh, of my unredeemed self. And through God's Spirit, to be born into a brand new world, a world of God's hospice, where lamb-eating wolves lie down with them instead. In a moment, we're going to take our communion. When you came in, you would have been given these little COVID-friendly pats. They're not friendly to COVID, but they're friendly to you because they don't have COVID. And in there is some wine. It's actually grape juice because we want you to be able to drive home unaffected by the laws of the land. And there's a little wafer which represents the bread, so the bread and the wine. And in Christian communion, it's one of the things Jesus did before he went to his death is he broke bread with his disciples and he passed around a cup of wine and he said, as often as you get together, celebrate this feast, break some bread and drink some wine. And I would invite everyone in this room today to join us in this feast because I want to tell you a secret about communion. Communion is a commemoration of the death of Jesus and we hold the broken bread and it reminds us of the broken body of Jesus. And we hold the juice which has been extracted through great pressure and squeezing and we're reminded of the torturous, sacrificial death of Jesus. But why Jesus did that was to introduce something that was central to his practice and central to his teaching. And that is that the coming of the kingdom of God would be celebrated by a feast, a banquet, a banquet of God's kingdom. It's one of the most dominant Bible metaphors for what it looks like when God reigns in planet earth is people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every socioeconomic persuasion, people of different beliefs, people of different genders, people of different education and different power bases, but all of them equalize as we join together in a great banquet called the kingdom of God. And feastings, do a, celeb- do a study of feasting in the Bible and you'll see it. And Jesus calls us to break bread and drink this wine every time that we gather in remembrance of him. I'm going to tell you a secret why it's important. Because when we take communion, when we eat the bread and when we drink the wine, we are looking through the keyhole of the future. And we are celebrating the transition of the world that is into the world that ought to be. Theologians say it this way, that communion is an anticipatory feast. An anticipatory feast. Don't you love anticipation? Anticipation. My mum's staying with us at the moment. She's visiting, so you'll notice I'm on my very best behavior at all times. 
and we've been anticipating her visit. So because we're anticipating her visit, we dusted the shelves and we vacuumed the floor and we took the, you know, we took the snakes out of the bed and the red backs out of the cupboard. We washed the kids behind the ears and we shined up the silverware. We don't have silverware, but if we did, we, we would have done it because we're anticipating. So when we anticipate, we look ahead to the future and we begin to make arrangements in the present. So communion grounds us as a Christian community as an anticipatory feast because it's our way of saying we're looking forward to God's kingdom flooding planet Earth. Isaiah said, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There'll be a change in this world. And there is a change in this world. And this change in this world is as you and I embrace the end of hostess and invite internally God's hospice to reorder our inner world. And then what we do is we go as those sent to carry the hospice of God as well. So when we celebrate communion theologically, we always have two ideas in mind. The first one is we look back to the death of Jesus and we say, God, thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for the versioning of a new movement, of a new creation movement that we are invited to be swept up in. That's the look back. But it's also the look forward that says, God, thank you that your work is growing like little fat raft, starting small but growing in this world. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed in the garden, but it grows up into the tallest tree in the garden. And we look forward in communion, we say, we look forward to the day where we see more of God's rule and reign flooding planet Earth. More of God's healing, more of God's justice, more of God's love, more of God's holiness, more of God's joy. And this morning, my friend, I invite you to unwrap your communion and take the bread in your hand together. Hold it in your hand and about what Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever I take this, I I like to break it. Because it represents for me that the thing Jesus offers that cannot be found in Freud and cannot be found in Maslow and cannot be found in Jung or Nietzsche, it cannot be found in Aristotle, it cannot be found in Buddha, is a body broken for me as a sacred sacrifice to end the hostess of my nature and bring me, deliver me into the hospice of God. This is my body, Jesus said, broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. Come on, why don't we eat together, family of God? Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my blood of a new covenant a new relationship, a new sacred agreement. This is my blood shed for you. And I want you to picture what goes into harvesting grapes in the prime of their growth when they're fully ripe, when they're fully ready, when they're at their most potent, at their most delicious. Let's harvest them and then let's squeeze them. Let's pressure them. Let's trample on them. Let's stomp on them so that what pours forth would be vivifying liquid. Jesus said, that's, that's me, that's my sacrificial death for you is the pouring out of my blood so that you could be revivified, so that I could pay the penalty of sin, release you from the power of sin and cleanse you from the pollution of sin. So I could deal with the human condition and invite you into a new future. And Jesus says, drink this in remembrance of me. Come on, why don't we drink together this morning, church? wondering what to do with these you can either pass them toward the aisles or you can just pop them on the floor under your seat and our team will take care of them so uh, I don't know if you'd like to bow your heads and close your eyes all over this room this morning and let's just sit for a second in awareness of the work of God in awareness of the work of Jesus in awareness of the great exchange the great reconciliation that we're called to and sent with. We're called to the end of hospice and the beginning of God's hospice in our own selves, in our own lives, in our own families, in our own psyches. And I can tell you, my friend in this room, that 20 years ago when I found the gospel message, it found someone whose life was ravaged with the hostess of this cosmos. All sorts of evil inside me, through me, to me, and from me. 
The pain of it was so great. I was medicating, drinking myself to sleep, snorting stuff, smoking stuff, bouncing around, party to party to party, club to club to club, bed to bed to bed, binge to binge to binge, trying to deal with what was inside me and what was around me. And in a moment exactly like the one we're sitting in, I heard the gospel message I said in my heart a sacred yes for the first time in my life a yes to the gospel Jesus no matter where I'm going to no matter where I'm coming from today I draw a line in the sand of my life and my answer is yes to the gospel message I wonder how many hearts in this room today either for the first time ever or for the first time in a long time God is moving in your life and he's saying hey come on why don't you just say yes to me in your heart say yes to me in your mind say yes to a new future say yes to a new mode of living say yes to a new way of life I pray for you I pray for you, my friend, in the name of Jesus Christ. I pray God's kingdom would grow in you like a mustard seed. I pray if you follow Jesus, I I, I pray you would continue to follow him, that you would embody the hospice of God and that you would be empowered to take it from this place out into our world, the world that God loves so much, the world that God has a heart for, the world where, where God sees every broken thing and he wants to put it back together. And you and I are called to walk with God and be ministers of reconciliation, to join things back together to bring into reality by our loving action and our loving prayers and our loving service and our healing deeds, God's new hospice-filled world. I pray for you as you leave today that your soul would be marked by the gracious love and the wonder of a God who says, let me reconcile you and this world to myself in Jesus. I pray that over this Christmas season, the reality of the coming of Jesus would be something that resonates in your heart and mind and shakes something in your world for the better. I pray that you would embody who Jesus is. I pray that you would embody God's reconciliation, both for you and for those around you. In Jesus' name.